Well, it's great to be together today, and I'm excited to continue my study in the book of Hebrews this morning as we talk about the order of Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7. For those of you who are visiting with us and may not have been around for our previous studies in Hebrews, or maybe you need a refresher, but the book of Hebrews was written uh, somewhere in the latter half of the first century. It was written to Jewish Christians who were already enduring uh, intense persecution on, from the part of the Roman Empire, and the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed in AD 70. And a lot of Jewish Christians, as we read throughout the New Testament, uh, those Christians who came from Judaism had a hard time letting go of the law of Moses. They had a hard time letting go of the Levitical sacrifices and the Levitical priesthood. And the book of Hebrews is written to encourage them and to show them the superiority of Christ. And we use this table here as kind of a rough framework, if you will, to kind of frame our thoughts as we've gone through this series. And we've talked about different aspects of Christ. We talked about the seven wonders of Christ that we find in Hebrews chapter 1, the attributes that make him the great high priest, the attributes that make him the Son of God. And, and the Scripture says that in these last days, God has spoken. His final word to humankind regarding him and, and our relationship to him is found in Jesus Christ. We've talked about how he was superior to the angels in the message they delivered uh, under the Old Testament. We talked about how he's worthy of more glory than Moses. He's better than the law of Moses. There's a rest for the people of God in Jesus Christ that is better than the rest that was promised to the nation of Israel. And beginning in chapter 4, we kind of started a little mini-series. We haven't really called it that, but from chapters 4 through 7, the writer of Hebrews is talking a lot about the priesthood of Jesus Christ and him being our great high priest. And we began that in chapter 4, we talked about in chapter 5 how he wanted to explain to them more about Christ's priesthood using the character of Melchizedek as a type of Christ, and we're going to get to that today. But he paused because he says, I want to say a lot to you about this, but you can't hear it because you become dull of hearing. You're not maturing in your Christianity. You're not maturing in your spirituality, and you've, you've slidden back in some ways. You've uh, apostatized in some ways, and he warned them about apostasy, falling from grace, and told them that was a real danger. And he wanted them to move on to maturity, to leave the principles behind of the basics of Christianity, build on that foundation, and grow and mature in Christ. And the way to do that was to have a full assurance of hope that we talked about last time, that full assurance of hope in Jesus that's based on the promises that God made to Abraham and the oath that God made that he would keep those promises. And so as we continue now into chapter 7, he's getting to... The, the priesthood of Christ that's based on the order of Melchizedek. And so we want to talk about that today. And as we consider this, a couple of things I want to throw out just at the beginning. Number one, I don't like it when grocery stores put the milk at the back of the store. Because sometimes you just need a gallon of milk. And you got to walk all the way to the back of the store to get the milk. I don't want to do that this morning either. That's why I go to Brahms. You just run in and get your milk. Well, the, the back of the milk at the back of the store today is the the priesthood of Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Okay, that's where we're going. That's our destination to show that this man who was a king and a priest, his priesthood is a type or a shadow, if you will, of the priesthood of Christ. And to show that, the, the, the Hebrew writer is going to spend the entire chapter 7 talking about that and proving that and arguing that. And there's really no other way to get around it other than to read the entire chapter as we go through this. And so I, I don't typically like to read a lot in my sermons. And so because of that, um, I may be a little bit longer than I normally am. Still won't be as long as Danny, I promise. But, uh, but maybe a little bit longer than I normally am. 
And it's just a necessity because we really have to go through this. And hopefully as we go through this, it's not just an information dump, but as we do this, we exalt Christ. We exalt his priesthood in, in our lives. And we have a confidence and a faith and assurance in knowing that what we have is with Christ as our great high priest is so much better than anything else uh, we can have. So backing up to Hebrews chapter 6, beginning verse 19 to give us a little bit of context, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So in verse 1, he's getting into it. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And so the writer here references this event that happens uh, that we can read about in Genesis chapter 14. So just to give a little historical context to this event and describe what's happening here. He's referencing this event. It happens in Genesis chapter 14. And if you'll remember, this is right after Abraham has been called out. His name was still Abram at this time. He'd been called out by God to go into a far country. Uh, He's left his home behind. He took with him his nephew Lot, which will become relevant. Um, But at this time, there were nine kings. These were heathen kings who had basically formed a coalition. And these nine kings were led by a man named Chedorlaomer, who was the king of Elam, which, according to my research and the commentaries I read, is actually Persia. And so there's a lot of other kings here that have unpronounceable names, and the cities they're from are unpronounceable, and we just don't have time to read the story anyway. But basically, for 12 years, these kings get together, and they sort of pillage and plunder their way through this land, and they're invading cities, they're invading villages, and they're basically stealing everything they can get their hands on. They're taking prisoners, and they're making them slaves. And after 12 years, five of these kings rebelled against uh, Chedorlaomer and the other kings that stayed with him. And they rebelled against him. In the 14th year, they basically joined in battle together. And they joined in battle to the, near this place called the Valley of Siddim. And in this place, there were a lot of uh, slime pits or tar pits that are there. Um, and, and I guess historically, and even today, you can visit those. But at any rate, some of those uh, kings that rebelled were caught up in those pits. And because of that, they lost the battle. Some were killed. And everyone else sort of just fled to the surrounding areas. The kings, five of the five kings in, included, the five kings that rebelled included the kings from Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, those names are going to be familiar to most of you. This is obviously before God destroyed those cities because of their wickedness. But those kings were included, and, and so the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah after the battle were looted, and Lot, who lived there, was taken captive. If you remember, Abraham and Lot, the herdsmen of their, of their basically tribes, if you want to call them that, were, were fighting against each other for the, for the resources of the land. And Abraham said, hey, we're family. You pick which way you want to go, I'll go the other way so we don't fight about this. Well, Lot decided to pitch his tent towards Sodom, and that's where he ended up. So Lot was taken captive along with all his possessions, And so there was a man who escaped the battle, and that man informed Abram, or Abraham at the time, at the time he was still Abram, informed him that Lot had been taken captive. And so that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 14. If you want to read along verses 14 through 16, it says, When Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. 
Then he brought back all all the possessions, also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. When we think of Abraham, we probably don't often think of a military man, do we? We don't think about a, a tactician or a general. But Abraham was a man who saw what needed to be done, and he had resources. He had 318 men who apparently were trained in some way for battle. Uh, he hears that his nephew Lot has been kidnapped, and he says, okay, we're going to go take care of this. And he takes his trained men. He pursues them uh, to the far north and defeats them in battle. And he brings back all these possessions, all these uh, basically plunder that they've stolen from these cities, and he brings it back. And we see in verse number 17 that after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And verse 18 is where we get our context for the study this morning. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So this is what the Hebrew writer says. And when you basically starting in verse 17 through verse 20 here, the first verse and a half of Hebrews 7 is basically telling us what we have here. And this is all we know about Melchizedek. This is the only time we actually see the character of Melchizedek in Scripture. We have a mention of him in the book of Psalms here in a minute that we'll read. But other than that, we don't have any more information from this. And the Hebrew writer has, has given us everything we know in this verse right here. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. That's all we know about him. And this may seem a, a, a strange footnote. You know, if, if consider yourself a a Jew, an Israelite, and this story is in the, in the Scriptures, and you think, well, what is, why was this so important for Moses to write down for us? Why did, why did we even need to know about this man? I mean, he, I guess he was a good man, and it, after this battle, this happened, but, but what, why is it important to us? And you know, there's been a lot of questions over the years, a lot of speculation about who Melchizedek was. And some people think that Melchizedek was a manifestation of Christ, And he literally was Christ. Some people believe that. Some people think maybe a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Some people think he was Shem, the son of Noah. Some people think he was Enoch. And and all that is really just speculation because this is all we know about the man. And where I stand today and where I am, and maybe I don't want to necessarily be dogmatic about it, but I think Melchizedek was just Melchizedek. He was a man who was a king of this city, Salem, which is where Jerusalem ended up being. And he was a priest of the Most High God. And I submit to you that what we know about Melchizedek is exactly what the Holy Spirit wants us to know about Melchizedek. The Holy Spirit doesn't want us to know where he came from, who his parents were, or anything like that, because that takes away from him being a type of Christ. And so, to me, it's fruitless and pointless to spend all this time on, well, who was he really? You know, Melchizedek was his superhero name. What was his secret identity? He was Melchizedek, and he, he serves the purpose of being a type of Christ, and I hope to be able to show that this morning. So we do have, as I mentioned, a scriptural reference to him in the book of Psalms 110, verses 1 through 5, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And we know this is a prophecy of Christ because Peter references this, this phrase in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. 
Verse 2, he says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David, as he wrote this psalm prophesying about Christ, references Melchizedek as a type of Christ in, in the priesthood that he would have. And so that's all that we have mentioned of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And the only place in the New Testament where he's mentioned is in the book of Hebrews. And we've talked about some of those verses already um, where he directly references the order of Melchizedek, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 is where we find, excuse me, where we find that. No other mention of Melchizedek. So his, his purpose is to show to us a type of Christ and his priesthood. And so the Hebrew writer then, uh, starting in verse 2 and continuing on through the rest of the chapter, he's going to start talking about the attributes of this man, of, of his kingship, of his priesthood. And ultimately, all that's going to do is lead us to show us what kind of king and priest that Christ is. So let's talk about these attributes of Melchizedek for just a minute. Continuing in verse 2 of chapter 7, it says, And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So, if I was just to walk up to you and say, king of righteousness, king of peace, who is that? How many people would say Jesus Christ? I know I would. And so already we start to see this type of Christ using the, the name Melchizedek itself and, and the city that he was a king of to show us the type of king that Christ is. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Nobody's going to dispute these things. Jesus is completely righteous. He's the king of peace because he brings peace between God and man. Now, the word Melchizedek in our English Bible is a transliteration of the word in Greek. Now, what, what does transliteration mean? It means literally just it's the same word spelled out in English instead of Greek. So phonetically, for you teachers, if you know how to read Greek, the word Melchizedek in English basically sounds the same as it does in Greek. And when the, when the writer of Hebrews wrote the Greek in his letter, he was a transliterating the word from Hebrew. So when you look up the definition of the, of the, name, of the word Melchizedek in your Bible dictionaries, you're probably going to see a man who was a priest of God and the king of Salem. But we know that Hebrew names had meaning. We read all throughout the Old Testament where the Bible says God gave this man this name because it means this, or this person named their son this because it means this. So, well, the name Melchizedek had meaning in Hebrew, and that name was king of righteousness. That's what it means literally in Hebrew. But he was also king of this city, Salem, which would eventually become Jerusalem. And the word Salem means peace. And if you've ever heard a, a Jewish person or maybe a Messianic Jew or if you've watched the, the TV show The Chosen, they're always saying shalom to one another. And it just simply means peace or peace be to you. And so he's king of righteousness and he's king of peace. And so we're seeing that type set up. And it's important that we understand that he was a king because Christ is both king and priest. And Melchizedek was king and priest. And it's important to show that type because the Levitical priesthood, that was not the case. Okay, so the only times in scriptures where we see a king of Israel try to take the role of a priest, bad things happened. God did not want kings and priests under the law of Moses. So the kings came from the tribe of Judah, as we'll talk about later. The priests came from the tribe of Levi. And so we see this type already set up, this king of righteousness, king of peace. We see that 
in the person of Christ as well. Continuing on verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And the phrase we want to really take note of here, he resembles Christ. And I think probably, you know, a lot of people read this verse in particular and think, oh, well, Melchizedek was actually Christ. Uh, I think there's a technical term for a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ called a Christophsis or something like that. I may be wrong in that, but basically what I consider like the burning bush as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, things like that. But this is definitely, to me, not that case because he says he resembles the Son of God. He's a type of Christ. So what does it mean that he has no father or mother or no genealogy or no beginning of days or end of life? What does that mean? It just means we don't know where he came from. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know when he was born. We don't know where he was born. We don't know how he became a priest. We don't know if or when his priesthood ended. We don't know any of that. And all of that is to lead us to show us that Christ's priesthood resembles that in that way. Now, is the genealogy of Christ important? Yes, it is, but not for his priesthood. The genealogy of Christ is important because God promised that the Messiah would come through the line of Judah, specifically the line of David. And so it's important that we be able to trace Christ's genealogy back to David, back to Judah, back to Abraham, back to Adam. It's important that we do that, but not for his priesthood. The priest, in the priesthood of Melchizedek, it wasn't based, as we'll see later, it wasn't based in his genealogy. We don't know what it was based in, and the silence of scriptures is deafening when it comes to Melchizedek. The Holy Spirit wanted it to be obscure, to show him to be a type of Christ, that he resembles Christ in his priesthood. And so in verse 4, he goes on to say, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, or a tithe of the spoils. Let's remember the theme of the book of Hebrews, the superiority of Christ. And he, right here, he's trying to lay that track. He's trying to lay that ground to show us why the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priesthood even, and why Christ and his priesthood is superior to all that. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Abraham, the patriarch, the father of the faithful, the man that the nation of Israel and the Jews looked up to so much and put so much stock in and being related to him. This man paid tithes to this king, Melchizedek. Verse 5 says, And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to, make tithes, to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham, but this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. So what he's doing, he's establishing superiority here. So, okay, under the law of Moses, all the tribes paid tithes to the tribe of Levi because they served in the temple. They served the priest. And the sons of Aaron, his descent, were the actual priests. But all the tithes were paid to the tribe of Levi because they didn't have land of their own. They didn't have a place in the, in the nation like that. They served everywhere. So the tithes were paid to the tribe of Levi. And that's what he's saying here. He said, but this man, Melchizedek, does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promise. Now listen, he's going to let us know why or how that Melchizedek is superior. Verse, verse 7, he says, it is beyond dispute. He said, I'm not even going to argue about it, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Who did the blessing? Well, he blessed Abraham, the one who had the promise. So Melchizedek blessed Abraham. The superior 
blesses the inferior. So Abraham paid tithes to someone who was superior to him. And he's establishing that to show that the priesthood of Christ is superior to the priesthood of the Levites. Verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So, again, he's establishing that superiority. Now, in one case, tithes are paid by mortal men. In the other case, by one whom is testified that he lives. In other words, again, the priesthood of Melchizedek, we don't know when it began, when it ended, when he died, but he, he was superior to Abraham. But we know that because Abraham paid tithes to him. And he said, and you can even make the argument that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek because he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Abraham made the tithes. And I wonder how much of a slap in that face that was to an Israelite. I don't know if it was or not. It seems to me that it might have been. For, for the writer to be telling him, hey, Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. And his priesthood was superior to that of the Levitical priesthood. So why was a new priesthood needed? Because he's going to start anticipating some arguments here, I think, and to think about it. And people might say, well... If, if Christ needed to be our high priest, why wasn't he descended from the tribe of Levi? Why was he not a, a direct descent from Aaron instead of from Judah and from David? Why, why was that? Why could, if he's high priest, how can he do that if he wasn't? And that's exactly the argument that the writer is going to make here. And what he's going to tell us is that he's, he's a, a high priest because we needed something else. We needed something besides the Levitical priesthood. In Hebrews 7, verse 11, he says, If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So what is the need? If, if perfection had been attainable, there wouldn't have been another priest. But the problem is that it wasn't. The word perfection here, it can be translated perfection or sometimes it's translated as performance, but it means completion or fulfillment or accomplishment. What could the old law not accomplish? It could not accomplish our salvation. We cannot find the forgiveness of sins in the law of Moses. The nation of Israel couldn't find it there. Perfection was not attainable. And we're going to talk about it in a little bit, but the, the, it's not that the law wasn't perfect. It's that the people performing the law weren't perfect. And so because of that, there had to be a new high priest. And so he goes on to tell us in the next verses, because of that, there has to be a change in the law. Verse 12, he says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law. Why did the law have to change as well? Verse 13, he says, For the one of whom these things are spoken, that's talking about Christ, for the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. There has to be a change in the law for Jesus to be a high priest. Because if there's not a change in the law, he can't be a priest. Jesus can't be a priest because why? He's descended from Judah. Nobody from Judah ever attended at the altar or served at the altar. Moses said nothing about Judah being priests. And I was talking to Trevor about this the other day, and he mentioned he likes to use this verse when we talk about the silence of Scripture. Because the silence of Scripture sometimes is as much important as what the Scripture actually says. Does the law of Moses actually say, Judah, you can't be priests? 
No, it doesn't say that. But what it does say is, Levi, the sons of Aaron, you be the priests. Judah, anyone from the tribe of Judah can't be a priest. Judah was the tribe of kings, starting with Saul, then going to David. Or excuse me, Saul was not the tribe of Judah, but David was the tribe of Judah. And then going to Solomon and going on and on and on. They're the tribe of kings. But as we mentioned earlier, whenever a king from the Old Testament tried to to step in and do the role of a priest, bad things happened. God didn't like it. So the law had to change in order for Jesus to become our high priest. And we're going to get it more into the, the change of the covenant in future sermons. So beginning in verse number 15 of Hebrews 7, he says, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what is he saying here? Well, it becomes much more evident that the law has to change. Why? Because he's risen to his priesthood. Christ has risen to his priesthood not on the basis of a legal requirement. And you'll see in these next few slides, we're going to have red and green highlighted here. The red is the Levitical priesthood. The green is the priesthood of Christ or Melchizedek. So Christ rose to his priesthood not based on the legal requirement that he be a descendant of Aaron in the tribe of Levi. It wasn't based on that. What was it based on? By the power of an indestructible life. What's he talking about there? He's talking about Christ's resurrection. The fact that Christ lives forever. And we've already read Psalm 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You may remember in our last sermon, and I mentioned it briefly in the introduction, we talked about the full assurance of hope that we have in Christ. What is it based in? Well, God made a promise to Abraham. Through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. That's talking about Jesus. He made that promise, and then God swore an oath to confirm that promise. Okay, that by two immutable things, we who have fled for refuge may find hope in Jesus Christ. He's that full assurance of hope. Well, the oath that he makes here is just as strong. So the priesthood of Christ isn't based in the fact that he was from a certain lineage. It's based in the fact that God said, you will be a priest. I won't change my mind. And it was based on the the power, or what he says here, the power of an indestructible life. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, speaking of Jesus, it says he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What was it that made Jesus the Son of God? Now, I know he was the Son of God. Just because he was the Son of God, that's true. But for the world to see that, the world to know it, what was it that declared him to be the Son of God? The resurrection. He was declared in power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by his resurrection from the dead to be the Son of God. And so the priesthood of Jesus is based in that. And it's not based on the basis of a legal requirement. So that's one difference. Going on to verse 18. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Let's stop there for just a second. So he says that former commandment or the law of Moses has been set aside in what? In its weakness and uselessness. And so people say, yeah, the the law of Moses was imperfect. It it wasn't a perfect law. To to which I would say, do you know who wrote the law? (laughs) 
Well, Moses wrote it down, but it was God that told him what to write. God authored the law of Moses. The law of Moses was perfect, and the law of Moses did exactly what it was intended to do. It was never intended to make us perfect. It was never intended to bring us salvation. The law was intended to point us to Christ. And so the commandments there are set aside because they just couldn't do, despite the law being perfect, they couldn't do what Jesus can because we are imperfect and only Christ can make us perfect. So a better hope is introduced through Jesus Christ. Verse 20, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So what he's saying here is under the law of Moses, when a man became a priest, there was no oath involved in that. The priest didn't make an oath. God didn't make an oath. He, just, he was anointed a priest simply because he was Aaron's son or his son or his son or his son, so forth and so on. But Christ was made a priest based on the oath of God. You will. I won't change my mind. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. And so he says in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What does it mean that he's a guarantor? He guarantees it. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Continuing on in verse 23, I hope that I'm not boring you with all this reading. Hopefully I'm making, this is making sense to you. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Another weakness in the Levitical priesthood is this. They couldn't continue in their office forever. Why? Because they died. They were men. As good of men as they might have been, anointed as they were for the purpose, they eventually died, and that had to be passed on to their sons. Not so with Christ. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Because of that... He is able to save to the uttermost. How much is the uttermost? Completely, perfectly. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. If you want to be saved to the uttermost, completely and perfectly, there's only one way to go, only one priest you can go through, and that is Jesus Christ. Because he always lives. He never dies. He always lives to make intercession for them. So I have a, little table here to kind of contrast the differences, maybe make it a little bit clearer uh, in our uh, service this morning. But the Levitical priest stood on one side based in the legal requirement, based in the legal requirement of the lineage of the high priest. They had to be someone who was a direct descendant of Aaron, who was the first high priest, who was from the tribe of Levi. They had to be that. Whereas in Christ's priesthood, his priesthood was not determined by bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. We're based in his resurrection and the decree and the oath of God, you are a priest forever, okay? The, oath, the oathless priesthood on one side. There was no oath made by the Levitical priest. God swore an oath that Christ would be priest forever. It was a temporary priesthood. The men who served as priests died. They couldn't continue on forever. Christ's priesthood is an eternal priesthood. The old priesthood made nothing perfect or complete. It couldn't save us. But in Jesus Christ and his priesthood, salvation is realized to those who draw near to God through him. And hopefully that be, lets us begin to understand 
the difference here. Now, continuing on in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So here's what we have here. We find a weak or sinful priesthood versus the righteous and sinless and spotless priesthood of Jesus Christ. Those priests in the Old Testament, what did they have to do? Well, they had to offer sacrifices daily. Okay, blood ran like rivers in the tabernacle and in the temple. They had to offer those sacrifices daily, first for their own sins, because they were men and had sin, no matter how good of men they were. So they had to offer sacrifices for themselves, and then they could offer sacrifices for the people. And they had to do it daily. But Jesus, because he was holy, because he was innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and has been exalted above the heavens, he doesn't have that need. He offered himself once on the cross. And he was perfect and he's sinless. when He bore our sins there, not his own. And because of that and the word of the oath that God made that you are a priest forever, he will not change his mind. He's been made perfect forever. And because of that, we have a righteous priesthood in Jesus Christ. On one side, the Levitical priesthood is the sinful, the weak priesthood. They couldn't approach God sinless. They had weakness. They had to make sacrifices for themselves daily. Whereas with Jesus, he was perfect. He was innocent, unstained, and separated, exalted. Those sacrifices had to be made often. Jesus only made one offering. And that's all that was needed because it was a perfect sacrifice. We're going to read later in the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls of goats can't take away sin. That's what they were offering back then. Why is all this important? Maybe by this time you uh, feel a little lethargic. We've been doing a lot of reading, and you, you may be asking yourself, well, why do I need to know all this? I don't suppose there's anybody in this room today that wants to put themselves under the authority of, of a, a Levite priest, even if we could find one. I don't, I don't know anybody that's a direct descendant of Aaron. I'm sure somebody out there is. But I don't know if they're a high priest, and, I, and nobody here wants to do that. Nobody wants to go back to the law of Moses. So why is it important for us? Well, it was important for these people because that's exactly what they were doing. They were still putting their faith and trust in this old system, this imperfect and weak system. And it was weak not because God made a weak law. It was weak because we're weak, and they were weak. And instead, he's telling them, you've got a high priest here who's perfect, why would you want to leave that and go back to something else? Now, you and I don't have the temptation. Yeah, there are religions and denominations out there, Messianic Judaism and things like that, that try to go back to the law of Moses. But, but you and I don't have to worry about that. What do we have to worry about? Well, we have to worry about letting the things of this world come in and have more importance for us than they should. We have distractions. We have the things of this world. Maybe we have a job or we want to provide for our family or we want to put our faith and our trust in those things instead of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is you may be waiting on that you would put in place of your great high priest, Jesus Christ, there is not a bigger, better deal coming along. It doesn't get any better than Jesus. In fact, it's never enough unless it is Jesus. And I thought it would be interesting as we 
sort of conclude this little mini-series on the priesthood of Christ to go back to Hebrews chapter 4 where it, it kind of he starts talking about that. And I think the Hebrew writer doesn't like it when they put milk at the back of the store either because he leads with everything we need to know about Jesus as our high priest. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, everything we really need to know about Christ as our high priest is right here. But he takes the time to spend the next few chapters talking about it because it's so important for us to understand it, to know where Christ should be in our hearts, that he should be in the highest place, as I think we're going to sing later. He's the highest, he's the great high priest. And nothing, nothing, nothing should come before that. And it's also important that we be able to teach people about this. If you're ever in a conversation, well, who is Melchizedek? Hopefully we can speak somewhat intelligently about that and tell people about it. And the importance of it not being who Melchizedek was, but what he represents, and that is the great high priest in Jesus Christ. And as we conclude this, think about this passage in Hebrews 8 that we'll probably start our next sermon with, and that is, now the point in what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Not a high priest who is a weak and sinful man who has to atone for his own sins so he can make sacrifices on behalf of the people, but the perfect spotless Lamb of God who lives forever, who by decree and oath by God has been made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you have not made Jesus the high priest of your life, now is the time to do that. Whatever you may be waiting on to save you or to make your life better than you think it should be, it won't work. Those who draw near to God can only draw near to God through one high priest, and that is Jesus Christ, and he is able to save them to the uttermost. If you want the uttermost salvation today, if you want complete, perfect salvation, make Jesus Christ your high priest. Repent of your sins. Confess Jesus as the Son of God. Be buried with him in baptism. Be raised to walk in newness of life to follow your great high priest. If you need to do that, if you need the prayers of this church for any reason, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.